Hello, Curvies. Welcome to episode 69. I'm here today with my co-hosts, Rachel Breyers and Liz Bashirs, and a guest. Way back in April 2020, in episode 45, we talked with Neil Lamb, Dr. Neil Lamb of Hudson Alpha, in a show titled Coronavirus and Credibility. That seems like a million years ago, y'all. It really does. As it does, doesn't it? It seems like forever. As you know, Kirby's, we really strive for evergreen topics. But in the spring of last year, we did a couple of shows that were very much in the moment because COVID was looming so large. It's no less large today, but a lot has happened in a year. And we thought it would be a good time to talk with Dr. Lamb again, get a temperature check, so to speak. We are going to be asking Dr. Lamb to break out his trusty crystal ball and give us a sense of what the future may yet hold regarding this pandemic. Before we get into that, though, Rachel, would you like to say a word about our sponsor today? Sure. So if your organization uses Salesforce, if you use Salesforce, you have probably realized how awesome it is. But it can be complicated to figure out how to use and how to unlock all its incredible functionality. And there's a good chance you just don't have time to become a Salesforce expert yourself. So what most organizations do is they rely on a Salesforce implementation consulting partner like Higher Echelon to help them get the very most out of their Salesforce investment. Higher Echelon is an award-winning Salesforce consultation partner who can come in, get your organization all set up in Salesforce, help you get the absolute most out of the platform. And clients are really amazed at the time and money and headaches, especially in human resources, that are saved once the power of this software is fully unlocked. Higher Echelon has consulted on massive Salesforce implementations for the government, and all across the private sector, if you are using any Salesforce service, marketing cloud, service cloud, experience cloud, sales cloud, you name it, you are likely only getting a fraction of the benefits if you aren't consulting with a Salesforce partner. Don't miss out. Go to higherechelon.com or get in touch with me, Rachel Breyers. Higher Echelon is the premier choice for Salesforce implementations and consulting. Dr. Lamb is an award-winning science communicator who leads the educational outreach efforts at the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology in Huntsville, Alabama. He has completed his PhD and postgraduate training at Emory University in Atlanta, where he was also a faculty member in the School of Medicine. His career shifted from hands-on research to science education when he realized his true calling, inspiring a passion for human genetics and biotechnology and others. The, this past year, over 1.9 million students, educators, practitioners, and members of the general public were impacted by the efforts of Dr. Lamb and his Hudson Alpha team. Dr. Lamb tweets at Neil Lamb, and you should check out his vlog, that's video log, at shareablescience.org. I love shareable science, Dr. Lamb. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I am so happy to be back with y'all. Well, it is great to have you back, and it's timely. Dr. Lamb, we are going to ask you today to put on that futurist hat. We're trying to all figure out where this is going, and I'm just going to kick off today with a question about the vaccine. That seems like a good starting point. There's obviously been a few fits and starts with the vaccine, and it seems like, oh my gosh, it seems like there's every thought and emotion around on the spectrum around the vaccine. Some taking it, some not taking it. People have strong feelings every which way. 
when I think about the vaccine, on the one hand, I, I'm, I am really just, in the same way I look back at World War II and the run-up to that America did to be in the war and to do, to do the wartime production, I, I sort of have the same feeling as I look at the science community and the science production that's been done in such a short time to solve this worldwide problem. On the other hand, even as I was taking my first dose of the Pfizer vaccine in mid-April, I just kind of had this nagging feeling. Is this safe? I mean, you just, even as I was taking it, as it was going in my arm, I'm thinking, is this the right thing to do? Um, It nags at you. So give us a little insight, please, into this, all this about the vaccine. Help us understand what we should know and what the future might hold. Sure. And, and and let me just start by saying, you know, a year ago, we were still in the place where we weren't sure if we needed to be wiping down our groceries. And we were just beginning to get a handle on what some of the clinical symptoms were and just beginning to realize that people might be asymptomatic but could still pass it along. So much has happened in that last year. Um, so much science, also so much tragedy and so much, you know, so much pain and suffering and and health loss and economic loss. So I I don't want to minimize that. But I want to say, I believe I said to your listeners last April, we would science our way through this, that we would figure out the answers. And we're certainly not finished, but I believe we've done that. You've seen one of the most amazing displays of the scientific community coming together, people stopping their traditional research and focusing on exploring SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19, groups working together that traditionally never worked together before. And you now have seen multiple vaccines come to market and, and be rolled out to hundreds of millions of people because we cut red tape and we worked together. Let me say that again. We cut red tape. We did not cut corners. Vaccines of all of our medications available around the world, vaccines have some of the highest levels of safety and trials and testing. And that did not change. So here's where we are in America right now. We have three different vaccines that have received emergency use authorization. Uh, Pfizer BioNTech. Moderna and Johnson and Johnson. Sometimes we hear that called Janssen because that's the European arm of Johnson and Johnson that put that together. Uh, There are over 200 million doses of vaccine that have been given out to Americans. And and I believe that we are now approaching 50% of eligible Americans have had at least one dose. Some of those vaccines are two dose regimens, Pfizer and Moderna. Johnson and Johnson is a one dose regimen. We have seen that all three vaccines are incredibly effective at doing what they're supposed to do, keeping people um, out of the hospital, keeping people from getting seriously ill and finding themselves on ventilators. That's what those vaccines were designed to do. That's what they were tested. We've also seen, and we thought this would be true, but it wasn't part of the clinical tests. We've also seen that these vaccines prevent you from being infected and slow the transmission of you passing it on to somebody else, 80 to 90% effectiveness. That's a huge issue. So not only does it slow you or prevent you, protect you against getting the virus, but if you do get the virus, it keeps you from getting seriously ill. 
that's pretty incredible. Not 100%, you know, no vaccine is 100% effective. So you see people that have uh, what are called, they're called breakthrough cases. They've been vaccinated and they get COVID-19. But in almost all those cases, it's a pretty mild case. All right, now let me transition and talk about safety because I think that's on a lot of people's minds. And I would we say know- it's especially on the minds of some of our listeners in that the J&J vaccine seemed to affect women that were kind of in a, an age range of, I think it was 25 to late 40s. And, and, and that's a lot of our listeners, Dr. Lamb. Yes. And, and so, so let's talk about that. Let me start with, we knew that there were certain side effects that were common, that happened pretty frequently. Um, and those generally happen within the first 24 hours after getting your vaccine. Uh, that's body aches. Um, it, your arm might hurt when you get the vaccine. It was really difficult for me to raise my arm above my head after my first dose. Uh, headache in some cases. Uh, some folks had fever and chills and body aches all within the first 24 hours. Those, are, those were common that we knew. Then there were the things that you would see much more rarely, uh, you know, on the order of one in 500,000 or one in a million. We had some hints the, of um, the anaphylactic, the allergic reaction that you saw early on with the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. And we had one case in the clinical trials of this really unusual blood clotting um, with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And the FDA said, we can't tell out of this one case if that's something we need to that we're going to see more frequently. So we're going to be very cautious and intentionally look for that in the safety process. So over the first 7 million doses, you saw about six women, six reports of women who had this very unusual, rare, but really serious blood clots, often in their brain, and really low platelets. And I think the the federal government appropriately said, let's put the Johnson & Johnson on pause, and let's wait to see if we have any more of those cases come forward, and let's look to see if we can find a biological basis behind that. From what I've seen so far, we're now approaching the window where if you were going to see this in any of the other people that had been vaccinated, you would now have expected to see that. And I think a small number of cases have come forward, but not an enormous number. So what we're probably dealing with is, again, a rare but serious side effect, maybe on the order of one in half a million, maybe one in a million. And I in no way want to minimize that because that is a serious effect. We now know to look for it. We know the appropriate treatment to give these individuals. It does seem to predominantly impact women and women under the age of 50. Mm -hmm. So I think what happens next for Johnson & Johnson is the FDA will do one of two things. They'll either approve it to move forward with some sort of clear label that says, physicians, you need to be looking for this. You need to let your patients, especially younger women, know if they experience this set of symptoms, they need to immediately call you. Or the FDA might say, we're going to approve this to move forward, but we're going to recommend that women under the age of 50 be given Moderna or Pfizer, one of the other vaccines, and that you hold this for maybe uh, older populations. So, so again, Mary Scott, I don't want to minimize this. We, we hear brain clots. We, we saw that one woman died, and that makes us pause because we think, well, do I want to take the vaccine? What if I've already taken that vaccine? What does that mean? But if we put that in context, you're talking about something that is a really, really rare event 
And we know that the vaccines on their own keep people from getting COVID and getting serious COVID and they save lives. So we're really lucky here in America. We have a choice of vaccines. Most places around the world don't. And I don't want to minimize the side effects, but I also want to acknowledge that we need to put those in their proper perspective in terms of overall risk. I think that's very helpful. And I think that'll be helpful for our listeners that, you know, people do have a lot of questions because those those cases have been so prominent in the news. Well, and I, Neil, I think there's a lot of very reasonable, very smart people who look at that and say, okay, I'm, I'm not at risk. And they look at the, the hospitalization rates and say, well, that's actually a pretty low rate of people who end up in a, in a hospital. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at this and I'm going to say, I don't think I need to take the vaccine. I'm not willing to take that risk. It doesn't, I'm, not, I'm not at risk. So what are your thoughts there for, for folks who just approach it from that perspective? Rachel, I think that that's a, a great question because I think that's the way a number of people, especially younger uh, people, tend to look at that. And, and I want to acknowledge we all come to the decision about vaccination from a different set of backgrounds, a different set of experiences and perspectives, and we all look at risks in different ways. You and I could look at the same risk of of one in a thousand, and one of us say, oh, that's so small, it's not even worth worrying about, and someone else say, oh, wait, that's a risk. That's not a zero risk, so I'm not going to step into that. Here's how I looked at risk, at at this issue for me. Uh, Yes, the likelihood of of me uh, finding myself hospitalized with COVID-19 is relatively low, but it's not zero. Um, I have uh, older adults, all four parents that live in my live in my community, my parents, my wife's parents. I interact with a number of older individuals. And I also am seeing with some of the variants that we're now witnessing around the world and in America that we're seeing younger and younger individuals become sick and become hospitalized. So for me, not only for my own risk, but also for my concern about the people that I come in contact with, for me, getting vaccinated makes sense. And I've looked at the data, I've read through all the clinical trial results, and I feel that my risk of something happening from vaccination for me, is significantly lower than my risk of developing COVID-19, getting long-haul COVID-19, or being asymptomatic and unintentionally passing it to somebody else. So for me, that's how I looked at measuring and making those decisions. I want to follow up that question with more of a human dynamic question here. So, you know, COVID has driven all sorts of interesting human dynamics in science, healthcare, politics, economics. Of course, you know, many books will be written over time. So as we think about the future of work, of community, what will this mean moving forward? What are your short-term and long-term predictions? You really are asking me to pull out the crystal ball, aren't you? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So, so, okay. So, you know, predictions are always really dangerous. Um, although I suppose you could always say, who knows where the future is going to take us. But I do think there are some clear things that we have seen from what our life has been like for the past 14 months. And for many of us, we've been able to do our work remotely. Uh, 
interacting with people face to face, screen to screen. Now I recognize many people that are in hospitality and that are on, that are frontline workers or that are um, in manufacturing have not been able to do that. So this is clearly a broad generalization. But even when the pandemic ends and people begin going back to work, I think you're going to see many more folks doing remote work or remote meetings. Not all the time, but a significant amount of time. There was a, a recent study from the McKinsey Global Institute, uh, Future of Work After COVID-19, that found that something like almost 40% of people's jobs in America could be done remotely at least a few days every week. 40%. So I think you're going to see people begin to say, oh, wait, maybe I don't have to get on the plane and go to that business meeting. Maybe we could all meet virtually and there's a lot of benefits that we could accrue with that. Uh, maybe I don't need to have everybody back in the office all the time. Now, there's some productivity um, improvements from that. And then there are also a lot of downstream implications. What does that mean for how much office space we're going to need and how we build teams and camaraderie? I, I, have, uh, I have family members who started new jobs early in the pandemic, and they have not been to their desk and had face-to-face -face meetings with their coworkers, in-person meetings yet. So how do you build teams around that? How do you build that sense of camaraderie? It can be done, but it just is, it takes something different. If we've got fewer people traveling, what does that mean for the entire hospitality industry? What does that mean for restaurants that, that are traditionally open in the middle of downtown in the business district? If you've got fewer people coming in for that, what does that look like? So many of us have gone to online shopping. What does that then mean for brick and mortar stores? So I think there's a, we're going to see a lot of changes even as we ultimately move back to, and I'm going to put this in quotes, normal, it is not going to be the normal of uh, 2019 or early 2020. But Hobie, hopefully, maybe, can we just get a little more normal? <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. 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 I, I truly believe, I believe we are going to be, by and large, back in person, back gathering together. Uh, but, you know, it's going to take a while, isn't it? The, the, the first time we step into crowded spaces, that's going to, for me, that's going to feel a little bit weird. The first time I go back into, into a restaurant, the first time I walk into the grocery store without a mask on, we now are going to have to, you know, st step back into the pool. Maybe some people will just cannonball straight in and go run through crowds. But, <laughs> but we are going to get closer to that. We are together. I am going to work. I, uh, I can meet. I, I can have business meetings. I can have people over for dinner. But I think we're always going to carry a little bit of this with us. And maybe that's not such a bad thing if, it, if we can apply it for what it means about our awareness of infectious disease and how easily they spread. Is it maybe a little bit like the risk-benefit analysis that you did uh, when you talked about earlier? It seems to me that's a super personal, super individual, I mean, just could not be more unique from one person to another. It may be that normal, getting back to normal is like, sort of like that. I mean, yeah, you know, somebody might cannonball into it and then somebody might re be, I don't know, baby stepping it. It just seems, seems like we're going to have everything uh, on, on, across the spectrum. 
So I might be on one of the more extreme sides of that spectrum. I have to travel for work. And so I've been back traveling for work since the beginning of the year. As of today, well, I guess as of two weeks from today, I'm fully vaccinated. <laughs> um, I got my second shot today. A little bit nervous, a little bit nervous because it really uh, hit me like a truck. The first one hit me like a truck for about 24 hours. So fingers crossed. But um, I, I know for me that that risk calculus has looked very different as somebody who can then come back from those trips and isolate and get tested and, and be careful. And somebody who, frankly, um, you know, had got infected before and so had that extra level as well. Um, but it, that brings me to it, the virus seems to attack people in such markedly different ways. You know, some people get so sick and some people might not even know they had it. Is that is that unusual for viruses? Is that unusual for for um, vaccinations like this? I mean, some people I know have gotten uh, one or both of them and felt not a thing. And then other people have just been knocked over. That's a really great question, Liz. And I think it speaks to uh, without sounding like we're all unique individual snowflakes. Um, it, it does speak to the fact that we all have different immune responses. Our immune systems are different one from another just because of the beautiful way that our bodies generate a diverse reaction to the world around us. Uh, everybody's interaction with the virus is not the same. Some people may have a much higher dose over a longer period of time. Some people may have a much lower initial interaction. But if you look, for example, at the influenza virus, it's estimated that maybe as much as 25% of influenza cases are completely asymptomatic. We don't hear about that. We don't test for it. We haven't what? done that. Sort of like we, this yes. is the first time I have ever heard that. 25%. You can get the flu and not know you have the flu? You could get the flu and not know you had the flu and pass it to somebody else. <laughs> oh, my husband yeah. is good because I never get the flu. I never get colds. He's going to say, you know, you probably had it 10 times and gave it to me 10 times. Well, and it's hard for us to study it because, I mean, think about how much testing we've now done for COVID-19. You never do that level of testing. If, if you get the flu, if you were to get the flu, Mary Scott, we're not going to now turn around and test your husband in three days to see if he genetically, to see if he carries the virus. If he gets sick, we'll say, yep, he got the flu. And if he doesn't, he'll say, woo, I was lucky, but he might be an asymptomatic infected individual. And some people with the flu have a mild case and some people actually end up in the hospital. Now your age also has something to do with that and, and your underlying comorbidity, your underlying risk factors. Let's think about a couple generations ago, polio. Some individuals that got polio got very, very mild cases and some people that got polio actually were paralyzed. So it isn't so surprising to find that there is a wide range of responses to a virus. Um, you know, viruses walk, I, I'm about to make them uh, sound like they're, uh, like they have human thoughts and emotions, so let me be careful about that. Uh, but a virus's job is to infect other cells and make more of itself. And if along the way the virus kills the host, it does not do itself any favors. So viruses have to walk a fine line as they mutate some of those mutations and they randomly mutate some of those mutations actually harm the host even more and it's harder for the virus to replicate. So those mutations don't make it. Some of them are less harmful to the host and it's easier to replicate and it's easier to pass on and those do get spread. 
you know, you see the the variant that came out of the United Kingdom, the B.1.1.7. That's about 60% more transmissible. And it's now the dominant form of the virus in America because it spreads so much more easily. Rich brings me to my next question. Are, are booster vaccines going to be a, a thing because of the variants, because of, of, you know, how some people do have some of those breakthrough cases. And so we will see, still see spread that kind of thing. Yeah, that's the $64,000 question, or maybe the $64 million question. If we bring that into 2021, it depends on a handful of things, Liz. Uh, how long does effectiveness last with your original vaccine? And we know so far that it lasts out past seven months. We think it will go beyond that, but we just haven't had enough people to have been vaccinated beyond that window. Some folks think that that might last a year. Some folks maybe even a year and a half. It also depends on what happens with the virus variants. Uh, The UK variant, the variant identified in the UK, um, even though it spreads more rapidly, the vaccines are still completely effective. The variants that were identified in South Africa and in Brazil and some of the ones you're hearing about in California, they are the vaccines are slightly less effective against those. But the key is your vaccine gives you a buffer level of immunity. And so even if these particular variants degrade some of that, if they evade the immune response, research still suggests that there's enough of a buffer there that they're going to be effective. Now, what does that mean about new variants going forward? It's possible we could find a brand new variant that means the, the vaccines are completely ineffective. Then we've all got to get boosters. Yeah, so far, that, and that's not where we are right now. I know you hear Pfizer and Moderna saying, we think people are going to need boosters. We've already created boosters. Yes, that, yes, I'm glad. But right now, we have no evidence that you've got to have that. So will you need a booster? Maybe. Will it be something that just becomes part of your, if you choose to get an influenza vaccine, will this somehow be bundled along with it? Possibly. Will we see these variants become more along the lines of seasonal, so they mutate, so they're less severe? I I think we've, unfortunately, we've just got to have more data. So that's my last question then after, after you mentioned that is, where in the approval process are some of these boosters that you just mentioned or possible boosters? Because, I mean, I don't think any of us have it in us to, to lock down for another year to wait on oh, something to get. No. <laughs> if one of these variants, um, you know, becomes very, very prevalent. Yes. And unresponsive to the and, and, and that's right. If we see immune evasion and the variant becomes, the variant, heaven forbid, becomes really harmful. So, there's a, there are two parts to that. Number one, you've got to know what your variants are and what, what, what's circulating. And until this year, really, we did not have a good system to be tracking those. And that's more than I had a positive PCR test. You've got to actually take that sample and sequence. You've got to read through the whole thing and read the whole recipe. Fortunately, we are much better equipped now for that kind of surveillance. So we can say we're now seeing these emerging variants arise in certain certain settings, and now we can begin to test to say, do they have immune evasion? All those people, all, the, all those processes. The core of your question, though, is once we say, yep, we got to have a booster against this, how long does it take? 
the mRNA vaccines, the Moderna and the Pfizer-BioNTech, they estimate that in about six to eight weeks, they can create a completely new booster, an mRNA booster that takes into account what those variants are. And the Food and Drug Administration has recently laid out the guidelines for what clinical testing needs to look like. And it isn't the, we have to have 40,000 people and we have to follow them for months and months and months because we've already talked about the efficacy, the safety of the process. Now you're just changing a little bit the instruction that's inside. And so it is thought that you're probably going to be able to see that clinical trial process happen really quickly because what you're then looking at is I'm going to vaccinate these individuals and then I'm, I'm going to follow some of them, but I'm also going to do lab work. And you might even get to a place where we actually do what are called challenge studies where I vaccinate you and then I intentionally infect you. There's a whole lot of ethics around that. We may just want to set that to the side, but <laughs> the thinking is that if you had a new variant arrive, that you could probably within a matter of months, maybe four months, you could have that booster now ready to go. You know, Dr. Leanne, we only have a few minutes left and I wanna first say thank you because this was a really important update. I think, you know, we're all kind of tired of the subject, but it's here and we're still dealing with it. We're still talking. So so I think it was time to do uh, an update and, you know, there's just a huge part of me as you talk through some of this that I I really just am amazed, astounded, thankful to the science community, the medical community for the amazing work. I mean, it's, you know, not only in the vaccinations, but in the medical treatments and I mean, all the progress that we've made understanding how to treat Um you know, that, that it's really, it's remarkable. And it, it speaks to just the human condition and makes me proud, you know, it makes me proud of science in America and science worldwide. And, but I will say that one thing you said early on that I do think about, and I, I don't quite know how to think about this, but I want to chip away at it a little bit today in the last few minutes. Our science community, our medical community put a lot of things aside you know, we, we kind of put aside the economy. We put aside the fade out dropout rate in high school. We put aside a lot of things, you know, because we needed to focus. And I do get concerned about all, we can't cover all these things, but I don't, I don't want to ignore the other things that are out there. Breast cancer is still out there and, and other, other diseases and, and poverty is still out there. And, so I want to take just a second or just a few minutes, and I want to give you a chance to tell us what Hudson Alpha is doing outside of COVID, because I want to chip away at this little bit. I don't, I, I, I'm a little tired of COVID sucking up all the oxygen, and I want to make sure we're also talking about other things that are important, mental health, you know, illness, other illnesses, that sort of thing. So tell us what Hudson Alpha is doing. A lot of our curvies are worried about breast cancer. A lot of our cur- curvies are worried about the things that you are working on at Hudson Alpha. Thank you, Mary Scott, because you're right. COVID understandably took up a lot of time, a lot of energy and a lot of funding, but that didn't mean that any of those other health issues went away. And one of the beautiful things that I've enjoyed seeing among my colleagues, my research colleagues at the Institute is that they've been able to carve off, some of them have carved off time to focus on COVID, but they've also been able to keep moving forward with their other work. So a lot of the work that goes on at Hudson Alpha from the human health perspective is giving families who have children with undiagnosed disease 
the ability to sequence through the genome and look for answers as to why they have the set of symptoms they do in their child. And that work has continued unabated and families continue to get answers that point them towards why and, and diagnosis. Our work in neurodegenerative disease, understanding Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia and Parkinson's and Huntington's continues as we look for new genetic clues that give us better insight into what causes these these devastating uh, and and robbing disorders. Um, our work with breast cancer to try to understand what all the different subtypes of breast cancer and how they respond to certain medications and how we give women information so that they can then make decisions that continued. And then a whole host of our research team, half our research team also focuses on sustainable agriculture and how do we feed the planet when we have more and more people and less and less farmable land. And that's something you're going to hear a lot more about from Hudson Alpha that really excites me. So that research continues on, as does the work of the more than four dozen companies that are also located on the Hudson Alpha campus. Dr. Lamb, thank you so much for that update. And thank you for the work of Hudson Alpha. It is super important. Dr. Lamb, again, tweets at Neil Lamb and he vlogs at Shareable Science. I would strongly encourage you to check it out. Thanks again, Dr. Lamb. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Kirby's great to be with you today. As always, please support our show at patreon.com slash bellcurvepod. And we will keep bringing you solid, enriching content twice a month so that you are just a little closer to always being your best you. See you next time.